Well, it's good to be back with you this week. Um, last week we were out of town. Um, while we missed being here, one good thing about having a week off, I was able to think through the upcoming sermons. Um, and I think what we're going to do, just to give you kind of an idea, we'll spend three more weeks in Genesis. Um, and we'll conclude, Lord willing, with Joseph exalted, um, his elevated status in Egypt. And then we'll take a couple of weeks um, considering the incarnation. Um, want to look and just consider Jesus' first week being born to die. And then the second week, Jesus being born, this will be the Christmas Eve service, being born that we might see God. Um, I, I, as many of you know, I've been mentioning um, John Owen's Glory of Christ and just how impactful that book has been and just really wanting to behold and consider Christ in all of his glory and how he has come that we might behold God. So with that, um, that's where we're going. And then the next week, Alan will preach. That'll be the New Year's Eve sermon. Tommy and I always, it seems to we get sick that week. So we went ahead and scheduled in advance. Um, and so, Lord willing, we won't, but that's how it's been the last few years. But this morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 40. So you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to see two more dreams in the Joseph cycle. If you recall, back in chapter 37, Joseph had two revelatory dreams. Those dreams signified his rise to power and his brother's submission to his authority. And as you probably remember, when he told these dreams to his brothers, they were angry. They were jealous and angry, and subsequently they sold him to slave traders. And then they, these slave traders brought Joseph to Egypt. So while Joseph's dreams revealed his rise to power, his position of authority that would extend over his brothers, where we are right now in the Joseph cycle as we're in chapter 40, Joseph's in prison. So if we were reading this for the first time, many of you, you've read this many times, but if we were reading this for the first time, one question we'd probably ask is will Joseph's dreams that he received, will they come to fruition? Will he rise to a position of authority that extends over his brothers in the land of Canaan, or will he rot in this prison? And this is important because these dreams, as, as will be noted all throughout this Joseph narrative, these dreams were given by God. And so if these dreams don't come to pass, what does that say about God? Is he real? Is he sovereign? Is, does he truly ordain all that comes to pass? Well, as we know, as we, when we get to the end of chapter 41, we'll see these dreams do come to pass. But we have to wait. Joseph has to wait. It's about 13 years of waiting. But today, the two dreams we'll see, we won't have to wait. These two dreams that will be had by the cupbearer and by the baker these dreams will come to pass in three days. So by the end of this chapter, we will see the, the fulfillment of these dreams. So let's go ahead and read Genesis chapter 40, looking at these two dreams, their interpretation and their fulfillment. So Genesis 40, picking up in verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was hungry with his two officers, I'm sorry, angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. 
and he put them in custody in, in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with much to be thankful for. We're thankful that you've given us your son so that now we might boldly approach the throne of grace and find help in time of need. We're thankful that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It is such a privilege to have fellowship with you, O God, and to have fellowship with your people. 
We're thankful for your church with whom we gather before you. And we as your people are thankful for your patience. You are so patient with us. Oh, I pray that we will be patient with others. We are thankful for your steadfast love. Your love fails not. It faileth never. And the only reason we love is because you first loved us. Oh God, we are thankful for your faithfulness. Your promises, they stand for you are immutable, unchangeable. We are fickle, constantly changing, but you are a rock, our rock, our safe haven, our refuge. And we are thankful that you have opened our eyes to see the glorious things that are spoken in your word. I pray that you will continue to open our eyes, continue to illuminate our minds to the truths of your word. Oh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning as we look to your word. Help us, oh God, I pray. Amen. So I'm sure that most of you know what it's like to be forgotten, even if it's just for a short period of time. Maybe it was a potential employer, said they would call you back about a job, but they never did. Maybe your parents never showed up, on, or they didn't show up on time to pick you up, whether it was from school, practice, whatever it might be. Maybe someone said that they want to take you out to lunch or out for dinner, and they stood you up. Or maybe, this may have happened to you, maybe not, but maybe you met somebody, and then the very next time you saw them, and it wasn't that long ago, they didn't even know who you were. They didn't remember you. They forgot you. Well, here in Genesis 40, the chief cupbearer, he forgot Joseph. After Joseph gives him this favorable interpretation of really an unlikely scenario, a Hebrew servant in prison, interprets a dream for an Egyptian officer. The dream comes to pass. This Hebrew servant says this interpretation comes from the Lord. He gives him the interpretation, comes to pass. And look what we read at the very end of the chapter, verse 23. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So while this is not explicitly stated in Genesis chapter 40, we can say that while the chief cupbearer forgot Joseph, Joseph was not forgotten by God. We're reminded of that in chapter 39. He was with Joseph when Joseph was brought down into Egypt. He was with Joseph when he was sold into Potiphar's house. And then in verse 21 of chapter 39, we see that the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love while he was in prison. So although Joseph is forsaken by man, he will not be forsaken by God. And for this reason, God is the only proper object of our faith. 
When I use the word object, I'm not reducing God to something we can hold, but I'm saying that God is the only one in whom we can properly place our faith because He is not like us. He's not like man. He's reliable. He's not forgetful. And we've seen this already throughout the book of Genesis. In chapter 8, we read that God remembered Noah. This is after the flood, and He brought Noah off the ark. In chapter 19, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot from Sodom before he destroyed the city for its wickedness. In chapter 30, we read that God remembered Rachel and heard her prayer and opened her womb. God does not forget. He does not forget his promises, and he will not forget his covenant people. And because the Lord does not forget his covenant people, Joseph rightly places his faith and confidence in God, in spite of the fact that he is falsely accused and thrown into prison. Joseph does not lose confidence in God. He does not turn his back on God, in spite of what is taking place, in spite of his circumstances. He continues to trust the Lord, for the Lord is trustworthy. And that's the primary implication that we'll draw out of Genesis 40 this morning, God is the only proper object of our faith. Why? Because He is reliable, because He's all-knowing, because His mercies are certain, and He does not forget His promises. And while we could add much more to that, that's what we're going to draw out here from this passage. So that's the trajectory of the sermon. That's where we're going um, after we walk through, the pa- walk through this book or this chapter. I mean, we're going to step back and consider that. But before we get there, Along the way, I will draw out a few implications and make a couple of doctrinal connections, um, namely God's providence along with Joseph's humanity, where we'll consider Christ's humanity as well. So let's go ahead and turn our attention here to the first four verses of this chapter. This is where we have the setting for the events to come. And in verse one, we read, sometime after this. So as we've seen in many of these chapters, they are connecting us to what we've already seen. And so this one begins with sometime after this. Now, what is that referring to? The events in chapter 39. So we don't know how much time has transpired since Joseph was thrown into prison. But sometime after this, we read here in verse 1 that the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker, they committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. So what we have here are two key persons for this chapter. So we're just laying the groundwork here. So what we see are the cupbearer and the baker. Important roles for Pharaoh. One handles his drink. One will handle his food. So these would have to be trustworthy men, that we be trusted individuals, because they were close to the king, and they were responsible for something very important for the king, his food and his drink. So not only were these men servants of Pharaoh, but we see that these men were officers. In verse 2, these were his officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So these men were responsible for others who were doing the very same work. So we have the chief of the cupbearers and the chief of the bakers. And so they, as we've already seen in verse 1, they committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. We don't know what the offense is. That's not important for the matter at hand here. But they committed some sort of an offense against Pharaoh. And as we see in verse 2, Pharaoh was angry 
with them. And subsequently, we see in verse 3 that he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. So he was angry at them. They committed an offense. He was angry. He threw them into prison, into the same prison where Joseph was confined. So, here we are. These two men thrown into prison. And in verse 4, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them. And he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. So, if you remember from chapter 39, Joseph was placed in charge of all the prisoners. So, why are we told about these two prisoners? Because there's many more that he's over, right? And there's many more who are probably officers of Pharaoh. So, why these two? Why, why do these two matter? Well, these two men, especially the chief cupbearer, are going to be significant in God's purposes in bringing Joseph before Pharaoh, who will eventually exalt him to a position of authority. So, at the outset, as we consider the setting here, Joseph in prison, these two men thrown into prison, they're in Joseph's care. At the outset, we're reminded of God's providential hand. As he's guiding and directing all things according to the counsel of his will. And we can say this because we know the story. We know what's going to happen. So remember, God's purpose is to elevate Joseph to a position of authority in Egypt. And he will bring Joseph's exaltation. I'm using that language, just exaltation. He's he's exalting him, lifting him up to a position of authority through a series of humiliating events. First of all, Joseph was sold by his brothers to slave traders. Second, Joseph was sold by slave traders to Potiphar. Third, Joseph was falsely accused, thrown into a royal prison. Yet, now he's one step closer to Pharaoh. It might seem like he's moving further and further away from the fulfillment of his dream as he continues to be cast down, put down, humiliated. But he's actually moving one step closer. For it's here in this prison, in this place that he meets Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, who will eventually, after a couple of years of forgetting him, who will eventually introduce him to Pharaoh, who will orchestrate his appointment to stand before Pharaoh, to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and then Pharaoh will elevate Joseph, fulfilling the dreams that he had. So while God is orchestrating these events and will eventually elevate Joseph to a position of great authority in Egypt, one thing I was, as I was thinking about, I think it's helpful to remember, Joseph doesn't know what's going to happen. Yes, he had two revelatory dreams. He knew something. He knew that there was something going to happen, but he does not know that he will be set over the land of Egypt that only Pharaoh will be greater than him in authority. He doesn't know how God will fulfill his purposes through these events here in chapter 40. Yet, as we'll be reminded here today, he remains faithful. He doesn't lose hope in God. So I bring that to your attention at the outset here because I'm sure there's times where you're tempted to feel discouraged 
I'm sure there's times where you're tempted to say, where is God? What is he doing? Is he truly sovereign? Are my circumstances outside of his sovereign reign? Well, questions such as these find their answer in the Joseph narrative. The life of Joseph illustrates well what our confession, the 1689 London Confession, states so succinctly. God decreed all that should happen in time. Nothing comes to pass outside of God's decree. And for those who are in Christ, this should bring us great comfort. This should bring us great comfort knowing that nothing will catch God by surprise. The unchangeable God is in control of a changeable universe. And in God's providence, as we have seen in the Joseph cycle, every time Joseph lands further and further, he gets cast further and further in the pit, so it seems, he rises to a position of authority. It began in his father's house. He was told by his dad to check up on his brothers, report back to him because he was a trustworthy son. In Potiphar's house, he was entrusted with the care of his entire household. And now here in prison, Joseph has been entrusted with the care of all the prisoners. And as God is orchestrating all that will come to pass, he brings two particular prisoners and places them under Joseph's care. These things are not taking place by chance or because Joseph just happens to be lucky. First of all, if you believe in luck, Joseph is not that lucky. Forsaken by his brothers, falsely accused by his master's wife, and now he is unjustly wasting away in prison. If you believe in chance, what do you make of the revelatory dreams that he has had in chapter 37? What do you make of all the statements in chapter 39 where we read that the Lord was with Joseph? And, and we can take from that that the Lord's orchestrating all of these things in Joseph's life. And then because, as we read in chapter 45, when Joseph told, tells his brothers, when he's really comforting them, he says, God sent me to Egypt. God is the one who made him Lord over Pharaoh's house. It is God who is orchestrating these events. These things are not taking place by chance or because of luck. There's no such thing. Why? Because God ordains all that comes to pass. As such, God has ordained that Joseph will be over these two men, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and his chief baker. And since God works through means, he will bring about his purposes through the interpretation of dreams, which we'll see in this next section in verses 5 through 19. This is the bulk of the chapter. What we're going to see here is Joseph interpreting their dreams. And sandwiched in between his two interpretations will be an appeal to be remembered. So as we see here in verse 5, each of these men, they both had a dream. And at the end, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. So these weren't two dreams revealing the same thing as with Joseph and as with Pharaoh. These are two different dreams, 
Yes, closely related, sure, but they're two different dreams, two different interpretations. And so when Joseph, as we see in verse 6, came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. And so he asked them, into verse 7, why are your faces downcast today? And their answer, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. In ancient Egypt, dreams were understood to be a means of knowing the divine will. As such, they had diviners who would interpret dreams, but these diviners were not available to the cupbearer or to the baker. Why? Because they're in prison. They're locked away, and they're dejected because there's no one to interpret these dreams. But Joseph knows that you don't need someone here that is skilled in the dark arts or in witchcraft and sorcery to interpret, dream, to interpret dreams. Now, just as, as before I get into this, just know this is not normative for us today. We have the Word of God. In the days of our fathers, as we read in Hebrews 1, God revealed Himself in many ways. Now He has revealed Himself and spoken through the Son. We have the Word. We don't look to dreams, just stating that up front. But as we see here, Joseph knows that dreams are not to be understood and interpreted by witchcraft or sorcery. So whenever he responds to them, he's actually insulting their religious system. He is going to say, as we see in verse 8, do not dreams belong to God? And so when he says this, he's actually implying that your diviners, they're counterfeits. They, 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 they act like they can interpret your dreams, but they are counterfeits. For why? Because it is God who reveals truth to man, not man. So Joseph is saying that these diviners, they are useless since the interpretation of this dream belongs to the Lord God Almighty. And by saying interpretations belong to God, Joseph is not only insulting their religious system, he's also expressing great confidence in God. Joseph is in prison, but he does not turn his back on God. He remains faithful and he expresses great confidence in God. He says, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Joseph shows his trust in God even in this humiliated state. Forsaken by his brothers, falsely accused by his master's wife, thrown into prison, but he does not lose confidence in God. He remains faithful even in this lowly state. Even in this state of humiliation, he trusts that God is still God. He does not turn his back and say, God, where are you? Are you still there? Because I'm here. He doesn't say that. His circumstances don't, don't make God real or not. Instead, he says, these interpretations belong to God. So tell me your dreams. He's confident that God will give him the interpretation. And so the chief cupbearer in verse 9, verses 9 through 11, he tells him about his dream. So in this dream, there was a vine. There were three branches. The vine blossomed and produced clusters of grapes. In addition to the vine and its branches, we see the cupbearer, he sees himself holding Pharaoh's cup, takes the grapes, presses them into Pharaoh's cup, and places the cup in Pharaoh's hand. So that's the dream. And Joseph then interprets. In verse 12, he says, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. 
And in three days, verse 13, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. So he will be restored to his former office in three days. So this was a favorable interpretation coming from the Lord through Joseph. And then after giving this interpretation, I want you to notice in verses 14 and 15, this is where Joseph appeals to him to remember him. He says in verse 14, only remember me when it is well with you. So when you're back in your former office, please don't forget about me. Remember me. Please do me this favor as we read in the rest of verse 14. Please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. The word translated here as kindness is the same word back in chapter 39, verse 21, that's translated as steadfast love. So the idea here is that Joseph is saying, be loyal to me. Remember me. Remember me before Pharaoh. You see, a professional interpreter, the diviners in ancient Egypt, they would have asked for payment. They would have asked for money. But Joseph's only request is this personal favor. Please remember me when you stand before Pharaoh and give him his cup. And in this request, we see in verse 15 that Joseph will appeal to his innocence. This is the first time we've seen Joseph say anything about his enslavement or about his imprisonment. In the first part of verse 15, he says, as he's appealing to him, remember me. Why? Because I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. He doesn't blame his brothers. He appeals to the fact that he belongs in the land of the Hebrews. This is the promised land. The land that was promised to Abraham. Yes, they have not yet inherited that land. But it's still, this is the place where Joseph belongs, the land of his people. He knows he belongs there. In, in fact, whenever we get to chapter 50, we'll see Joseph appeal to the sons of Israel to bury his bones in Israel because this is his land. This is his homeland. So he wants to go back. So his first, first appeal is that he was kidnapped. He was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And then his second appeal is that he is innocent. Into verse 15, here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. We know that Joseph is innocent in this matter. But this is the first time he's appealed to his innocence. This is the first time we've heard him appeal to his innocence. He tells the chief cupbearer to remember him. I was stolen and I've done nothing to warrant being thrown into the pit. That's a play on words here. If you remember, whenever he was thrown by his brothers into a pit in chapter 37, that was the language used there. The pit, a place he could not escape from. Here, a place he could not escape from, in spite of the fact that he is innocent. So he's saying, remember me before Pharaoh. Do me this kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh. Get me out of here because I was kidnapped and I've done nothing to be placed Joseph's appeal reminds us that he's more like us than we have seen so far. I say that because Joseph has this extraordinary faith that we've seen all throughout this narrative. We see a man who remains faithful no matter his circumstances, and in some ways it seems supernatural to many of us. 
He's been faithful through it all. I pray that our lives would be characterized that way, but Joseph just seems to be superhuman at times. But here we're reminded of his humanity. While he remains faithful, he still desires to be free. I'm assuming just from the looks of the text that he wants to go home. He wants to go home to his father. He wants to be out of jail. He wants to be freed from suffering. He's kidnapped, and he's an innocent man. And so as I was thinking about Joseph, as I was contemplating this, it reminded me of Jesus Christ, who assumed our likeness, who became man. And I thought about Jesus. He truly was man. He truly is man. And we see his humanity in Luke 22. When he prayed to his father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Like Joseph, Jesus experienced true suffering. And he prayed that the father would remove his cup of suffering because it was intense. But thanks be to God that that's not where his prayer ended. Thanks be to God that Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But his willingness to endure suffering does not diminish the reality that Jesus truly did assume our likeness and that he truly did suffer. In his humanity, he experienced true suffering. You see, if we attempt to dismiss Jesus' humanity, we're just like the heretical groups who say that Jesus just appeared to have a physical body. But as we see in Scripture, God became man. And Jesus had to become like us. That he might do what Adam could not do. Namely, obey the righteous requirements of God. He had to fulfill the righteous requirements that God placed upon us. God is a covenant God. And in his covenant with man, he says, do this and live. Yet we disobeyed and brought forth death. Therefore, Jesus had to fulfill all righteousness. He had to fulfill the righteous demands that stood against us. And only man could do this because these demands were placed upon man. So not only did Jesus have to become man to fulfill the righteous requirements placed upon man, but he also had to be man to die for man. As the Heidelberg Catechism states, God will not punish another creature for man's guilt. Man must pay for his guilt, therefore Jesus became man. But as the Heidelberg Catechism goes on to say, he must be truly human and truly righteous, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, he must also be truly God. So while Joseph is a type of Christ, I've said this, I hope I've said this a number of times, But while Joseph is a type of Christ, we must remember that he is only a type. For Joseph was merely a man. Jesus was man, truly man. But Jesus is truly God. Therefore, we look to Jesus, not to Joseph. We can be encouraged by Joseph. We can find a good example in Joseph. But that example is only sufficient as it points us to Jesus Christ. For as we're reminded here in, Joseph, or in Genesis 40, 
Joseph is limited. He can't interpret these dreams apart from God. But Jesus is the Son of God, who is truly God. Therefore, we can say these interpretations, when, we, when Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God, we can say these interpretations belong to the Son. Because what can be said of the Father and what can be said of the Spirit can also be said of the Son. So when we consider the Son of God, it's helpful for us to remember that He did not come into existence at the Incarnation. For the Son of God is the eternal God. Therefore, everything we say about God can be attributed to the Son. So when we consider in a few minutes that God is reliable, that God is all-knowing, that His mercies are certain, that God will not forget His people, He will not forget His promises, all of these things apply to the Son as these things apply to the Father and to the Spirit. So when we consider Joseph as a type of Christ, we must not forget that every type is a far cry from the reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Son of Man. And being the Son of God and the Son of Man, you must look to Him for salvation. There is no salvation in anyone or anything apart from Jesus Christ. Don't look to men like Joseph. Even though Joseph is an exemplary man, don't look to him for salvation. Look to Christ. For there will be no salvation even for Joseph apart from Christ. And there will be no salvation for you apart from Jesus Christ. So we look to him. But we can be encouraged by others like Joseph who truly are looking to God. So as we return here to this passage, we've just seen Joseph give this interpretation for the cupbearer and then appeal to the cupbearer to remember him showing us the suffering that he's experiencing. He's not superhuman. But now we come to the chief baker's dream. So in verses 16 and 17, the chief baker will come to Joseph. He saw that that interpretation was favorable. So he comes to Joseph and tells him his dream. In his dream, he has three baskets on his head. The uppermost basket in it was all sorts of food, but as we see at the end of verse 17, the birds were eating out of the basket on his head. After this, Joseph will give his interpretation. The three baskets, like the three, um, like the three branches, are three days. And what will happen in three days is that the chief baker will have his head lifted up. If you remember back in the, the, the cupbearer, his head would too be lifted up. But with the baker, his head would be lifted up from him. And he'd be hung on a tree and the birds will eat his flesh. Pretty disgusting picture. Um, but this picture is similar to the depiction we have in Revelation 19. As on Wednesday nights, we've been walking through Revelation 19 with our young people. Um, but we see when the enemies of God, when they're deceived by the beast and the false prophet. They're deceived to wage war against the Lamb of God. What happens, there's a call for, there's an angel that calls to the birds and says, come, the great supper is here. And the great supper is for them to feed on the flesh of all those who waged war against the Lamb. All those who were 
judged, killed. And so it symbolizes the dishonor of those who had fallen, standing with the Antichrist. And so here with the chief baker, this symbol of the birds eating his flesh shows his dishonor as he has offended Pharaoh. And so his body will be left for the birds. So that's the interpretation. But before we move on and look at the outcome, I just want you to notice here that Joseph is faithful to the truth. He doesn't lie. He doesn't give a favorable interpretation because think about it. He gave a favorable interpretation to the cupbearer because the interpretation was favorable. The chief baker comes to him in verse 16. He saw that the interpretation was favorable. So he comes to Joseph expecting, we could say, a favorable interpretation. But Joseph just reveals the truth. He doesn't lie to him. He doesn't tickle the ears of the baker. We don't know the baker's reaction, but we see Joseph's faithfulness to proclaim the truth. J.G. Voss, Gerhardus' Voss's son, he, was, he wrote this about 70 years ago. This is what he said. We can readily realize the application of this truth to our own day. When many people want only preachers who will proclaim a popular type of message, a message that makes people feel comfortable and peaceful while they are still in their sins and unreconciled to God. Joseph would not waver. He would not proclaim a watered-down interpretation. He gave this man the truth, a hard truth at that. So now that we've seen the dreams, we've seen the interpretation of the dreams, we come to the final section here where we see the fulfillment of these dreams, which show us, really, this is why verse 8, we can read, do not interpretations belong to God and say, yes, because we see here the fulfillment of these things. So in verse 20, Pharaoh, it's his birthday. This is the third day, third day after these interpretations have been given. Pharaoh has a birthday, so he throws a feast for all of his servants. And as we see here, he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer, and he lifted up the head of the chief baker. So far, everything is playing out just as Joseph said. And so here, these two men, I just want you to picture this. They've been singled out, presumably taken from the prison, singled out. Their heads are lifted up. Possibly what's happening is people are bowing before Pharaoh, and he lifts up these two men. We can't be sure, but they've been singled out. And in verse 21, he restored the chief cupbearer to his position. He placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, just as Joseph said. But then in verse 22, he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. The dreams came to pass. The interpretation of the dreams came to pass. What Joseph said has happened. It's pretty amazing. I mean, imagine the cupbearer. I mean, this is what this Hebrew slave just told me. This happened, this came to pass. Man, I'm gonna tell Pharaoh about him. Wrong. Verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He forgot him. How? How did he forget about Joseph? How? I mean, this was amazing. 
I mean, how could he forget this? A Hebrew slave, someone who was, was over him while he was in custody there, told him exactly what would happen, and he saw it, he witnessed it. How did he forget? How could he be so hard-hearted? How did he not believe? He got what he wanted. He was released from prison, restored to his former office, yet he forgot Joseph. While much more could be said here, this reminds us of a very important truth. Man will let us down. If you put your trust in your fellow men, your whole trust, your whole confidence, if you put it in man, you will be disappointed. I don't care what it is, whether it be the government, spouse, friends, family, you will be let down. Because man is not reliable. Man is not inherently reliable. Man is forgetful. I forget, you forget. I'm sure you've had someone come and say, hey, you said that you would do this. I don't even remember saying that. Man is not inherently reliable. That doesn't dismiss these things in us. I'm not saying we should be flippant about this, but man is not inherently reliable. The reason I'm saying this is because on the contrary, God is He is reliable. He will not let you down. This is one reason why he is the only proper object of our faith. God is not man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind, as we read in Numbers 23. Man lies. You lie. Man changes his mind. You change your mind. Man is forgetful. You forget. But not God. God is not like us. We're reminded of these things in this chapter of how we are. As we see the cupbearer, he was unreliable because he was forgetful. Now, we don't know whether he intentionally forgot about Joseph or if he just was so consumed with himself. We can make assumptions, but he forgot. Proving himself to be an unreliable object of one's faith. Now, I'm not suggesting that Joseph placed his faith in the cupbearer, but I think it's safe to say that he hoped he would prove to be reliable. I think it's safe to say that he hoped that he would return the favor. But as we read in verse 23, the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. But God will never forget He's not like us. He doesn't remember one moment only to forget the next. God did not forget about Joseph. We saw that back in chapter 39. God is with him. The steadfast love of the Lord was with him. God doesn't forget. Why? Because he's all-knowing. He's omniscient. Omniscience denotes complete knowledge. So when we say that God is omniscient, we're saying he knows everything. His knowledge is not limited in any way. Genesis 40 is not an exhaustive treatment of God's omniscience, no. But it's certainly hinted at here. For as we learn in this chapter, God is the interpreter of dreams. Why is he able to interpret these dreams? Because he knows all. He doesn't merely just know the future. He has ordained all that comes to pass. All knowledge belongs to him, for all knowledge is his. 
So when we couple God's omniscience with the finiteness of men, we're reminded that God alone is the only proper object of our faith. His knowledge is not limited, for he knows all. Therefore, there's nothing outside of his omniscient mind. He doesn't create us and then later on say, hey, who are you again? Tell me your name. He counts and names the stars. You think he forgets you? God is not like us. He has no limits. His knowledge is not limited. He does not change his mind. There's nothing he does not know. And just think about how that's on display here, how that's contrasted here. The cupbearer, the baker, they're limited in their knowledge. That's highlighted in the fact that they couldn't even understand these dreams they had. Joseph, he doesn't even know how to interpret the dreams. That's why he says these interpretations come from God. No, we don't know how Joseph receives the interpretation, but we know that it comes from God, not from Joseph. He says that here in verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God? And then when he stands before Pharaoh in chapter 41, verse 16, he says, it is not in me. God will give favor, a Pharaoh a favorable answer. It will be God who will interpret Pharaoh's dream. It's God who interprets these dreams, and he uses Joseph as his instrument. And this is proven that these interpretations belong to God because these things come to pass. And why do these things come to pass? Why can God give the the interpretation? Because God knows all things. Because he ordains all things. Therefore, we can be certain of every word that he speaks. We can read the word of God, the Bible, with trust, not suspicion, because it comes from God who knows all and ordains all. Therefore, every word that he speaks is reliable. We can be certain of this because he knows all things. And because God is reliable and because God is all-knowing, we can have confidence that his mercies are certain. I say that because of Pharaoh. Just think about God in contrast, in comparison here to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is king of Egypt. He can seemingly do what he wants as king. Yes, he has limits. He can't even interpret a dream as we'll see in chapter 41. But he seemingly does what he wants. He throws these two men into prison. Both men committed an offense against him. Yet he restores one while executing the other. We don't know their offense, but we can presume that both men were guilty. Neither was innocent, both deserve punishment, yet one is the recipient of mercy and one is the recipient of wrath. But neither man has any certainty from Pharaoh that he will be merciful. They are merely at his mercy, and if not for these dreams, the cupbearer has no reason to expect mercy. Therefore, we can infer that Pharaoh's mercy is unexpected. While we learn from Scripture that the mercies of God are what? They are new every morning. We don't have to wait to find out whether God is merciful. For His mercies have been revealed to us in His Word. In fact, God revealed Himself to Moses saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is a merciful God. And for all who 
hear his free invitation to come to the Son, you'll be a recipient of his mercy. In Christ, you will receive not what you deserve, you'll receive pardon. But don't be deceived. God's mercy does not nullify his wrath. His wrath abides upon the wicked. We could listen to the rest of that quote from Exodus 34, or we could turn to Psalm 7 where we read, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his fiery fiery arrows shafts. Making his arrows into fiery shafts. In Psalm 7, we learn that God will judge in righteousness. He'll judge all who do not return to him, all who do not do this and live, all who are outside of Christ will be judged. You'll be recipients of his wrath. And it's certain. Now, it may not be certain for you. It may come unexpected to you. But that's only because you did not believe the warnings. Remember, God's mercy does not nullify his wrath. Both his mercy and his wrath are certain. As Peter tells us, God right now is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The only reason you will be surprised by his wrath is because you did not heed the warnings he sent to you. You'll be surprised by his wrath. You will think it's unexpected if you buy into the cute little sayings of our day, like, God just loves me the way I am. Or God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. Would you really be so bold To say that God's wrath only abides against the wicked manifestations of our heart? Think about it. He violently struck down his son on behalf of sinners. He didn't just strike down sin. He struck down his son on behalf of sinners. He didn't nail the manifestations of your sinful heart to the tree. He nailed his very own son to that tree, considering him a sinner. God's wrath was not merely poured out upon sin. It's poured out upon the Son. But God's wrath is not like Pharaoh. God is not impulsive. God acts according to his eternal decree. Unlike God, Pharaoh is impulsive. His mercy and his wrath do not come with guarantees. Yes, he does as he pleases, according to man, but he acts on impulse, not upon eternal decree because he's not eternal. God, on the other hand, is not impulsive. He acts according to his eternal decree. And while he has mercy on whomever he will have mercy, he will not strike down anyone who calls upon his name. For as we see in the scriptures, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
When God makes a promise, you can be certain that he will fulfill all his promises. Remember, God does not lie. He does not change his mind. So when God says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, you can believe this to be true. God will not forget his promises. He's not like us. He knows all. There's no limits to his mind. He will not forget and say, wait, did I promise that? I can't remember. No, what he promises, he will not forget. Because he who promised knows all, and he who promised is faithful. And not only has he promised to save all who call upon his name, he's also promised to never leave you nor forsake you. He does not forget his promises, and he does not forget his children. For he is not limited in any way. Whereas Joseph was left in an Egyptian prison, forgotten by man, forsaken by man, but he was not forgotten or forsaken by God. God has been with him the whole time. We've been reminded of his blessed presence with Joseph. While God, or while Joseph was in prison, God was showing his steadfast love to him. And although Joseph will be forgotten for another two years, he will not be forgotten by God. God will not leave him nor forsake him, and neither will God leave you or forsake you if you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only reason this is true, the only reason that God will not leave you or forsake you is because the Son of God was forsaken. He was forsaken on the cross. When Jesus hung there, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He truly was forsaken that we might not be forsaken. But he wasn't, he wasn't eternally forsaken because he was not inherently guilty. He was only one who absorbed your guilt. He died in your place, but he was not inherently guilty. Therefore, Jesus was raised up to newness of life. And now for all who trust in him, you've been united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. His obedient life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrected life have all been applied to us. So as we consider these glorious realities found in the scriptures, the realities that God is reliable, he changes not, the reality that God is all-knowing, there are no limits to his knowledge, the fact that his mercies are certain, and that he does not forget his promises or his people, we can say that God is the only proper object of our faith. Nothing else in all creation compares with him. Besides, everything else, anyone else will let you down. Therefore, look to the Lord and keep looking to him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as 
men, women, boys, girls who are weak. Our faith, so often it fails. Because we so often trust in ourselves and our abilities. We look to others, we place our faith in the wrong place. Help us to live lives confident in you. Looking to you. Help us to keep our eyes fixed upon you. Help us to be like Joseph here in his example that we would trust in you no matter our circumstances, but help us not to look to Joseph. Help us to look to you through your Son, by your Spirit. Give us grace. We pray for mercy. Not because we deserve it, but because we need it. Apart from your sustaining hand, your preserving hand, we would all fall away. Oh, keep us. Keep us in your grace. Help us to abide in your Son. Help us to see the glory, your glory, that's been revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's been four weeks, and so Larry will invite him down here, and so if you want to go ahead and come on down, and we'll welcome him after our benediction. So come welcome Larry into our membership here, but you can go ahead and rise for the benediction. From 2 Thessalonians 3.16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace At all times and every way, the Lord be with you all. Amen.